take your copy of God's Word and turn to Luke chapter 16. Uh, Luke chapter 16, continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I'm going to read uh, verses 19 through 31 to the end of the chapter, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dive into God's Word together. Hear God's word, Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not do so, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophet, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. God, as we already have testified this morning, you are a great and glorious God. Uh, You are holy and righteous and perfect. God, we thank you that we have the great privilege to be called your people. Let us not take it lightly today. So, Father, as we enter into your presence, we start by confessing our sins to you. God, we have not lived for eternity this past week. We have lived with regard that this world is our final home. We have not spent our money wisely. We have thought too much of ourselves and not of those in need around us. So God, I pray that you would forgive us, that you would forgive us through the blood of Christ, that you would remind us that we who are in Christ have been fully and freely forgiven by your grace, that our sin is as far as the east is from the west, not because we deserve it, God, but because of your mercy and your grace. So God, I pray that you remind your people, remind my heart that we are forgiven because of what Jesus Christ has done on Calvary's cross. God, we come now and we pray for those who are in need. We pray for all those in our congregation battling cancer, uh, for Ted, Carol, Tommy Franks, uh, Betty Folsom, uh, Miss Beverly, uh, Sertain. God, we pray for Miss Judy, uh, who's diagnosed this past week. God, we pray that you would show yourself powerful in their lives, God, that you'd remind them again and again that your grace is sufficient, that you will never leave them nor forsake them. So God, I pray that they would rest and they would boast in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we pray for our city. 
uh, for others who are preaching the gospel this day. We pray for Steve Hogg at First Baptist Church. We pray a blessing upon his ministry, God, as he preaches the word of God to the people of God. I pray that they would be moved in obedience, God, by your Holy Spirit, convicted of sin and drawn to holiness. God, we pray now for our own hearts as we open your holy word together as your people. God, the people of Park Baptist Church, God, we pray first and foremost that we would be humble enough to hear your word. God, that we would not rise up against you, but God, that we would be willingly and graciously um, ready to submit to your word. So God, I pray that I may decrease and that you may increase, that I may hide behind the cross, that I may hide and submit myself to your holy word. God, help us think great things about you. Help us understand the harsh judgment of those who oppose you. So God, I pray that those who are here today, that their hearts would not be driven in fear, God, but they'd be driven in fear of you and be driven to you, Lord God, that they would experience your grace this morning. So God, by the power of the Holy Spirit who speaks to our hearts, God, I pray that you would speak through me to your people, that they would be changed. They'd be changed for their good and for your glory's sake. So God, we humbly submit to your word now. We ask that you would speak to us by your grace. We ask this of the one who epitomizes grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Terry uh, Wantanabe was the CEO of the Oriental Trading Company. Uh, he became the CEO when he was 20 years old. It was a business that was founded by his father. Uh, it, was a, it was founded in Japan, made of small trinket toys and under uh, Terry's leadership, he grew this small toy company to a multi-million dollar mail-order toy empire. It was said by 2000 when he sold his company, the company was bringing in $300 million per year. Uh, when he sold his company in 2000, he made a plan to devote his life to helping others and to have fun. Uh, he was quoted in the Omaha World Herald by saying this, If it's not fun, it's not worth doing. He was a very rich man. He was part of our nation's elite power brokers. He had it all. That is until he lost it. The plans he had to help others was not as fun as he first hoped. So he turned to drinking, drinking and gambling. He started taking regular trips to Las Vegas and indulging in the sumptuous living that comes with the Vegas lifestyle. He thought of helping others faded as he was consumed with seeking pleasure for himself. In 2006, he lost $204 million between two different Las Vegas casinos. He was one who had it all, money, power, friends, servants. But his desire to live for pleasure caused him to lose it all. He experienced the great reversal of fortunes as he gambled away his future. And I would venture to say that there are many people here today who are like Wantanabe, who are gambling away your future. How could a man lose $204 million in one year? We hear things like that, and we are convinced that that would never happen to us. But if everyone who lives for himself, for this life only, will experience the same great reversal. 
and the next life. He gambled away his futures, and many others here today and around our country are gambling away their futures by focus on living for today rather than living for eternity. Jesus gives us an illustration in Luke chapter 16 to warn us about the great reversal that is coming for us if we live for money and pleasure and those who are not rich towards God. If you want to follow along in your bulletin provided for us, that first point is the great reversal of fortunes. The great reversal of fortunes. Now Jesus shares this story to rebuke the Pharisees who were lovers of money. You remember the beginning of, of, of Luke 16, Jesus talks about living, spending your resources for eternity rather than for this life, and the, the Pharisees mocked him. So in verses 14 and 15, it says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money ridiculed Jesus for encouraging people to live and spend their resources for eternity. We see the beginning of this text. Look with me again in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was a, laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, scholars have debated back and forth, is this a parable? Uh, is this a real account? Uh, most parables explicitly say, there, Jesus said this was a parable, uh, we have good reason to believe that this was a parable because it's connected back to verse 16 when Jesus shared a parable that started the same way. There was a rich man, just like this story. The proximity of those two, two accounts makes me believe that this was also a parable. But it was a, a very specific kind of parable. It was an example parable, which does not put, uh, depict a single real event, but more of a representative one. The rich man is not anyone in particular, but we're supposed to identify with him. He's a model for us, a kind of person. This rich man, it says, was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he, was, he feasted sumptuously every day. We see the excessive wealth that this man had. He dressed in expensive clothing. He was wearing the Armani of the day. And it says he feasted sumptuously every day. Now, there are times in our life where we feast and we celebrate, but this man didn't feast on special occasions. He feasted every day. He was a glutton. He had a big house with a gate protecting him from the outside world, protecting him from his pleasures so he can enjoy his extreme wealth and live a life of luxury. He lived in earthly riches while at his gate was a man that lived in earthly poverty. Listen to the description again in verse 20. At his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. I mean, the contrast is absolutely striking. The poor man was named Lazarus. Now, Lazarus is a, is a variation from the name Eliezer, which means God's help. And it's ironic because in this story at the beginning, God was not helping Lazarus. He was poor, covered in sores, starving and unclean. The Greek paints an even more depressing picture than the English renders. For the words used for sores imply that he was completely debilitated. 
He didn't just have sores on his skin. The sores affected his body so much he couldn't even move. That's why when these dogs came, these dogs didn't come to comfort him. These wild dogs came to, to lick his sores. Now, no Jew would allow a, a wild dog to lick your sores because you would have been made instantly unclean. But he was so debilitated because of this sickness of sores that he couldn't even lift and fend off the dogs. And it says that he was longing. He was desiring to be fed from the crumbs of the rich man's table. The picture is not good. He is in anguish. The rich man had earthly riches, but spent them on himself, ignoring this poor beggar at his gate. Lazarus had nothing but a desire to be helped by this man who feasted while he starved. Now we see this great reversal turn in verse 22. Look with me. It says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Both men die and experience this great reversal of fortunes. Now, beloved, death changes everything. None of us can avoid death. See, only in death does Lazarus' name, God helps, now make sense. Because God helped him by carrying him by the angels to Abraham's sides. In glory, having the, the wealth and the pleasures forevermore from our Scripture this morning, Psalm 16, 11. While the rich man's riches failed him. Riches always will fail us if we trust in them. Listen to the picture. It says this rich man died and was buried. And in verse 23, in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. The rich man had everything in this life until he lost it. Uh, beloved, too many times we live for this world. We want to be like those who live for this world. But they are going to experience a great reversal. But I want you to see that not only did this man lose all he had, look at the conscious suffering that was added. The text says that he was being in torment. He lifted up his eyes. Being is a pre present participle showing continuous action. So when people die apart from Christ, they do not vanish from existence, but rather experience the reversal of fortunes with a conscious suffering absence from the presence of God. This is not a pretty picture. If people reject God's presence in this life, he will deny you his presence in the next. Now many people want to explain away hell and eternal punishment, but in doing so they, they explain away the majesty and the glory of God. See, hell is an eternal response to the rejection of the eternal beauty and glory and righteousness of God. The only punishment that is worthy of the crimes against an eternal God must be eternal. The eternal conscious torment of sinners in hell is a reflection of the holy, righteous, eternal character of Almighty God. When you lose the doctrine of hell, you lose the doctrine of God's glory. 
we do not understand the reason that hell exists, the problem may rest with us in having a deficient understanding of the glory of God. Now, the story is not meant to condemn us, is it? It's meant to, to lead us to salvation. All Scripture is useful to equip us for salvation. This story, story reminds us that we will all face judgment upon death. So we better change how we live today. And in particular, we better change in how we spend our money. Anytime a preacher starts talking to money, you know what starts happening? Stopping. <laughs> Stomping on toes, right? We don't like people talking about how we spend our money. But listen, beloved, Jesus is telling this story of those who misuse their wealth. God gave them riches and they spent it on themselves. And what happened to that man? He went to Hades, experiencing torment. So do you, do we, ignore those around us who are in need? Do we choose to spend our money on pleasure when people at our, at our, are at our gates desiring to be fed with the food from our tables? We all have to answer for our own checkbooks. Only you and God know how you handle your money. God holds the rich man accountable for he spent his wealth. And beloved, God will hold you accountable for how you spend your wealth. And beloved, God will also hold us accountable as a church. How we spend our resources. Are we going to spend our resources only for us or for those who are outside our gates, who are lost and starving, desiring to be fed with the food at this table? Or are we going to spend our wealth and riches only on ourselves? We must live for eternity. The question is it's very clear in the text. You can have your ultimate pleasures now or forevermore. There's not an either or. The second thing I want to see in this text is the great request for favor. The great request for favor. The rich man was being tormented in Hades. Now, Hades is recognized in Jerusalem as where the dead are gathered. Uh, it, was, it was popular in Jewish lore that the righteous and the unrighteous were both in Hades. The righteous were above and the, 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 the unrighteous were below. Now, Guyana, which is also the word we used to get for hell, was the, the place of final suffering. But what we see here, painted in the text, is that this man, this rich man, was experiencing the, the righteous judgment of God for his sins. And he makes a great request, a great request to have favor from God. Listen to his plea. Go back to verse 23 for context. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. The rich man called out appealing for mercy for Father Abraham. Now he was a child of Abraham, right? A, a descendant of Abraham. He trusted in his heritage, in his standing before God as a Jew, not one who was one inwardly, but one who was trying to be one outwardly. Not a matter of faith, but a matter of, of outward appearances. He was in anguish in Hades, just as Lazarus was in anguish on earth. Now, notice that the rich man asks for Lazarus' help while he was anguished. He asked for him by name. It reminds us that this rich man was far worse, far more evil than we first saw, we first saw in the beginning. 
because he knew Lazarus' name. He knew that Lazarus was at his gate. He knew that Lazarus was debilitated by the source. He knew that Lazarus was desiring to be fed with the crumbs of his table. And yet he ignored him. The rich man neglected giving aid to those in need while on earth. So what happens? He is neglected in receiving aid in Hades from Father Abraham. Look with me in verse 25. But Abraham said, child, reminding him of his heritage that he lost. Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. It was too late. It was too late for him as it is too late for anyone after death. This is a very sobering story. We want to believe that everyone has another chance. But there comes a day where we will be held accountable for our actions and there will be no more chances. When I was running the group home, one of the saddest days of um, uh, my, my life, honestly, is when these girls would come to us and we would be their last chance. We would be their last chance for them to try to raise and keep their children. But they, couldn't, they wouldn't listen. They would continue to make these decisions and these choices that would hurt them and they would hurt those around them. So finally, I had to look them in the eye and I had to say, you have to leave. I've warned you again and again about your behavior. Finally, you have to leave. So I would load the child's stuff in one car and I would load their stuff in another. And I would watch them leave and depart in different cars, a mother losing custody of her child. That's a sad day. But even how dark and sad that day is, there's still hope that one day that mother would turn and that one day that mother would get her life right and win her child back. But I want you to see that there's no hope here. There's no light. There's no chance of repentance. A great chasm has been fixed. And upon death, there is no hope. There is no hope upon death. The light is out. There is nothing but darkness. There is no hope for salvation after death for the unrighteous. You see why this passage is sobering and it's encouraging us not to be marked with the unrighteous and specifically not be marked with the unrighteous in how we spend our wealth. It's easy to say, I don't do those things that are unrighteous and wicked, but do you spend your money like the unrighteous? That is what the passage is speaking about. The rich man realizes his fate and he does not want anyone to experience the anguish So he makes another great request for God's favor. Although it's not for himself, but it's for his family. Look at verses 27 and 28. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. This man begs for compassion for his family. He does not want his brothers to experience the same end. He doesn't want his brothers to misuse their wealth and forsake those in need so that they will not experience the anguish and torment of judgment. So he had compassion. 
This, this, this unrighteous man had compassion, but he only had compassion for his own family. The rich man wants his brothers warned about the coming torment, as Jesus wants the Pharisees to be warned about the coming torment for them. The Pharisees thought they were righteous, but God, who judges the hearts, knew they were lovers of money. They did not love God first. They loved their wealth more. They needed a new heart. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. If I was going to stop and ask the question today, how many of you came today with your lips ready to praise God, but your heart far from Him? That's who God is speaking to. That's who God is speaking to this morning, to the Pharisees. Jesus warns of the coming judgment. Now, warnings are a gift of grace, aren't they? Aren't warnings an absolute blessing for us? They are designed to protect us from something bad to happen to us in the future. So how do we respond to warnings? When people warn you, how do you respond? Do you invite warnings or do you spurn them? Let's say you start listening to a new band. You really start liking their music. You know, you go to a trusted friend and you say, man, I just started listening to this band. They're great. you got to get their CD. They're awesome. And they, they look at you and they go, before you buy another CD, can I just warn you about some of their lyrics, about what they're saying and some of the false teaching that they're, that they're following? I would just warn you not to listen to that kind of, of music. How do you respond to that situation? Do you say, Okay, well, let me, let me think about that. Let me, I don't want to do anything that doesn't honor God, so let me think about that. Or you say, well, forget you, I like this music. How do we handle warnings? Warnings are a gift of grace. We have to weigh warnings. Not all warnings are good warnings, but we have to weigh them to see if they're good or bad according to God's word. So are you hearing the warning this morning? Are you hearing the warning of how you spend your wealth? Are you one who feasts sumptuously neglecting those around you? Do you hear the warning? Christ is very careful with us this morning, saying, if you live to use your wealth for this life, he will not give you his wealth in the next. How we spend our money shows how we believe. I pray we would do so more and more. Lastly, we look at this, the great refusal of further evidence, the great refusal of further evidence. Verse 29 through 31, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The rich man makes his last appeal and it is denied. Abraham says his brothers have enough. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. And the word of God is enough. The rich man had the scripture, as does his brothers, but they did not hear him. The rich man was convinced that if someone came to his brothers from the dead, they would repent. But Abraham again confirmed that even if someone rose from the dead, they would not believe. They didn't need further evidence. They needed a new heart. The problem was not that they didn't have enough evidence. The problem was is that they chose not to believe the evidence 
that was given. The problem was their will. Listen to what Romans 1, 18-22 says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, hear that again, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They had enough evidence of who God was, but they rejected the evidence. The Bible says they became fools. Now a fool is one who lives without regard to God. A fool says, I can live any way I want now because no judgment is coming. That's exactly how the rich man lived. I could spend my money any way I want now because there is no judgment coming. And the scripture says, you're wrong. There is a judgment coming. Jesus shared this story to rebuke the Pharisees who were lovers of money. But remember, Jesus came to rescue the disease-hearted Pharisees in rising from the dead. He even alludes that right there. There is going to be one who rises from the dead. He came to rescue the disease-hearted sinners like me and you who live as fools in this world with no regard to God. The only way that we could be saved from our evil, wicked, diseased hearts was to give us new ones. As he promised in the Mos- in Moses and the prophets. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 36, 25 through 27. The Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a, a heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, Jesus came to expose and destroy the idols of our hearts, that nothing would be more important to us than Jesus Christ himself. He was crushed on the cross for our uncleanness. He was brutally beaten for we bowed our hearts to serve false idols like money and power. He paid for our foolish hearts, who that had no regard to God, with his death. But God raised him from the dead, giving us living hope. He was raised by the Spirit. So now when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, he puts his Spirit within us. So we're able to walk according to his statutes. We're able to give according to his statutes. See, a new heart delights in using our wealth for the good of others and not for sumptuous earthly living. Let me close with an illustration about Charles Studd, who was raised in a wealthy family in England. Uh, his, father's made, his father made millions uh, as an indigo planter, and he retired rich. Uh, late in Studd's uh, life, uh, Studd's father's life, uh, he was converted under the preaching of D.L. Moody. Uh, Studd was eventually brought, um, 
was eventually brought to hear uh, Moody himself and was converted. According to his father's will, um, Charles would receive his inheritance at the age of 25, roughly worth $25 million by today's standards. So at the age of 23, he started praying and asking the Lord, what should he do with this $25 million inheritance? And studying the rich young ruler, where you remember Jesus says to him, sell all that you have and give to the poor, he was determined to succeed where the rich young ruler failed. So upon receiving his inheritance, he gave it all away. $25 million he gave away. He gave it to D.L. Moody to start the Moody Bible Institute. Uh, He gave it to George Mueller's orphanage. Uh, He gave it to the Salvation Army. Stud then gave his life as a missionary in China, Africa, and India. He believed in the resurrection from the dead and lived his life for eternity. He did not succumb to the love of money, but stored up for himself treasures in heaven. Listen to Stud's famous poem, which epitomized his life. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life, which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one life, soon with its fleeting hours be done, then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or his will. Only one life which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world will tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way and help me, help me Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fever burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thy pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say thy will be done. When at last I hear the call, I know I'll say t'was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Beloved, do not gamble with your life. You have only one life, and it will soon be passed. But remember that whatever is done for Christ will last. Let's pray. God, I pray for my heart and the hearts of the people you have given me to care for. God, I pray that we would heed the warning, that we would not live for this world, that we would live for eternity. God, that we would use our wealth to help those around us, that others may hear the glorious call of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
God, I pray that you'd help us win the test of prosperity by caring for those in need. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of eternal life. And God, we thank you for the the warning of judgment. Let us take your warning seriously. But God, let us live for your glory. Let us live and know, God, that whatever we do in this life will always last because it's done for your glory and honor. Uh, Help us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.